Welcome to Mytho Ladies, a podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Zoe. And I'm Lizzie. And I also forgot to ask you how you are. (laughs) I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm visiting friends at college right now. I am not at the college I normally am this semester because I'm going abroad, which is very exciting. But that doesn't start until a little bit later. So I am just chilling at home, bopping around, seeing people, relaxing. It's honestly... That's awesome. Yeah. Lizzie, how are you? I know I'm fine. Um, yeah. It's been up and down. I've been at work, which is nice, but I'm also more busy. And now I'm at my girlfriend's, which is fun. And they got a cat and I love her. Her name is Isla. Yes. Isla, our little missile lady mascot. Exactly. Um, yeah, so that's how I am. And next order of business is we have a new bonus episode. Yes, we do. Which, is, which features Zoe's friend Charlie, and we talk about the first Percy Jackson book, which I have not read. And so they explain it, the plot, and everything to me. Yes, me and Charlie have read many times and are quite passionate about. So yes, so that's quite this fun. This is the first in a series of which we will explain all of the Percy Jackson books to Lizzie. So. <laughs> I would recommend subscribing if you want to hear all those episodes. Yes, um, in order to... They're quite fun, in my opinion. They are. And in order to hear our bonus episodes, you can either subscribe on Spotify subscriptions or donate money on Ko-fi, which we would be very grateful for. Yeah. Thank you so much for all those who have already donated as well. Yes. Also, thank you so much for sitting out our January break. Oh, yeah, we didn't mention that. It has that. been a very... We took a break because we were busy. Well, I was busy. <laughs> no, you were also busy. We were busy. Yes. It was a good break. It was it was helpful. It was refreshing. Yeah. We're back with a bonus episode and some new ladies for you. So, yeah. Shall I introduce our topic today? Yes. All right. So today, it's our first bonus episode of the year. So we wanted to talk about, about creation stories and women who created the world. Creation stories are personally some of my favorite myths because they're so Same. fun. I love how they explain things. Yeah, and exactly. like, this is like this, this is this. And it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, so it's like, whoa. Um, that's a good one. The elephant has a long nose because the lion pulled on it. The lion, <laughs> the king lion pulled on it because he was a I can't remember the exact story, but it was something like that. Very fun. Things like that. You know, absolutely delightful. And a lot of the time, the creator god is depicted or thought of as male. But there are also a lot of instances of women being creators as well. And, like, that does make sense to me. Both of those make sense to me because we do we live in a society. We live in a patriarchal society. So depicting a male figure as the creator of everything aligns with the patriarchal worldview of much of society yeah. men coming first and being the source of everything yeah and and if you think about like the christian creation story like the first person was a man as well yeah which kind of sets the scene for like that whole worldview um but that's not how it is everywhere so yeah but also it makes a lot of sense for the creator god to be 
female as well. Of course, this isn't the case for all women, but traditionally women in a lot of places have been associated with childbirth and bringing forth new life. And so it makes sense that for women were associated with the creation of the very first life. Yeah. And so my first lady today is Asana Tlahi, who is from the Navajo creation story. Her name means the woman who changes or she who renews herself. And she's also known as the painted woman or the turquoise woman. And she's known by these names because she does not age. When she begins to grow old, she will walk into the east until she sees her younger self coming to join her. And then she keeps walking and eventually her younger self merges with her older self and she's renewed. So it's pretty awesome. Very cyclical. Yeah. Um, Kind of the sunset and the sunrise. And she is the wife of the sun. She lives with him in a turquoise palace on the western sea. And she's the sister of the white shell woman or the wife of the moon. And the story that she's mostly associated with is as follows. So the ancestral goddess, Atsi Essam, or the first woman, found Asana Tlahi on the ground beneath a mountain and raised her. She fed her pollen, and Asana Tlahi grew to adulthood in 18 days. And when she was fully grown, she met a young man and began to meet with him regularly in the woods. She began, like, you know, hooking up with him, basically. Yeah. But one day, her parents couldn't find her, and so they looked on the grounds and saw only one set of footprints. And they realized that meant the son had taken her to be a lover, because the son didn't leave footprints. Oh. And they were really happy, because it was a great honor to her family to be the lover of the son. And so her and the son got married. And as the son, her husband leaves her house every morning and visits her at the end of the journey every evening. However, one day she grew lonely because her husband was out all day and she used pieces of her skin to fashion the first humans to keep her company. Yeah. And she also gave birth to two twin sons who were immensely powerful. They grew into adults within eight days, and upon receiving weapons from their father, began to kill off all the monsters that roamed the land. And eventually, only four remained, which were misery, age, hunger, and winter. And they decided to keep those so they could value life and her gifts all the more. Yeah. Give them something to appreciate, contrast all the good things. And the sons celebrated this, but unfortunately, their ferocious battles had wiped out all other life on Earth. And so, Asana Tlahi um, decided she wanted to create more humans. So she white flour from her right breast and cornmeal from her left breast. She mixed them with water to make a dough, and from this dough she shaped humankind once again and placed them under a magical blanket. And the next day, they were alive. They grew to adulthood in four days and gave birth to the forerunners of the four great Navajo clans. Hmm. And therefore, humankind, as we know it today, was created. And I love the detail of white flour and cornmeal because those are such staple foods. Yeah. And it makes sense that those are things that we would, like, be created from. Yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me of how I've been, I'm in the UK and I can't find cornmeal anywhere. And I'm like, oh, this is not a thing Really? Yeah, apparently it's, well, I mean, it makes sense because a lot of corn is grown in the Americas, I guess. But I'm like, I'm I'm trying to make cornbread, but I probably don't need cornbread here. Just so sad. Yeah. Cornbread is awesome. That's interesting. Yeah, I do love cornbread. Do you like cornbread to be sweet or not, Lizzie? Yes, I guess, but not, like, very like, I feel like cornbread is great to just have butter on. Interesting. True. That is true. Um. Anyways, it's like, yeah, these are the fun, like, the staples. Flour, water, cornmeal. Yeah. And so the fact that humans were made from it is like, yeah. Makes absolute totally sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So as a goddess, her, her themes are weather, fertility, beauty, blessing, summer, time, and cycles. And she grows old in the fall and the winter and becomes rejuvenated again in the spring as she walks east. She blesses humankind with gentle rains, bountiful harvest, growth in the spring, and changing of the seasons. 
And she's particularly invoked to this day to help young girls grow into womanhood. So she's also, she's associated as well as like with the creation of first life, with things that allow for life to continue, such as, you know, good harvests, gentle rains, mm-hmm. growth, Makes sense. cycles, and also, you know, the development of into adulthood, which is really cool. So that's our first lady, our first creation lady. That's really nice. Wholesome. Yeah. So our next lady is the goddess Papatuanuku from Maori mythology. She is part of the creation story along with her husband Ranginui or Rangi, and she is also called Papa. And so the legend goes that Rangi the sky and Papa the earth lay together and created their children, the gods, all of whom at this time were male. Hmm. And they also included the god Tane, who was one of the big gods of Maori mythology. And so the gods were forced to live in the space between them, between the sky and the earth, which was cramped and dark. And the children discussed amongst themselves what they should do to solve this problem. And someone even suggested that they kill their parents so that they could escape. From this cramped area. Hmm. And so Tane, the god of forests and birds, pressed his hands against the body of his mother and planted his feet on his father and then straightened his back and pushed against Rangi. And then the bodies of Rangi and Papa were thrust apart and Rangi was hurled far away. Oh, I see. And thus, yeah, and that's why the sky is really far away from the earth. And so Papa obviously grieved her beloved was far away now. And a veil of silver mist hung over her, and drops of water fell from Rangi's eyes. Like rain. Yeah. Awesome. Like rain. I know. I feel like when, at least for me, when I was a kid, it was like, oh, it's raining because, like, God is crying or I've something like that. I've heard that before. I mean, that's definitely something I've heard before. Yeah, and it makes sense. Tears look like rain. So then Tane felt bad. So he worked to clothe his mother in beauty that had not been dreamed of in the dark world. He brought his own children, the trees, and set them on the earth. And he also brought his other children, the birds and insects, to clothe her body. Because I don't know if I said this, but she's the personification of earth, not just an earth goddess. Okay. And so now the earth is all decorated and pretty. And the gods frolicked under the leaves of the Garden of Tane and each had a duty to perform. And Tane also ended up uh, taking pity on his father, who had been sent far away where it was dark and gray. And so he took the sun and placed it on Rangi's back and put the silver moon in front of it. He traveled through the ten heavens until he found a garment of glowing red, and then he rested for seven days, and then spread the cloak across the sky from east to west and north to south. But he was not satisfied. He said it wasn't worthy of his father and stripped it off. But a small piece remained, which is a fragment of the garment men still see at the time of the setting sun. Yeah. So that's like the sunset, I guess. Yeah. A part of the sunset. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the creation of the world. But in addition to that, there's also stories of the creation of other things. So such as the the coming of life, like humans. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, Rangi and Papa gave birth to many gods, but they were all male. And so the female element, or Uha, was missing. Mm -hmm. So Tane began to search for the female element and asked his mother, Papa, for help. She advised that he go to Kurawaka, quote, for in that place, the female is in a state of virginity and potentiality. And she told him to gather up the earth in the form of a man once he was there, like from this red soil. Mm-hmm. So Tane went and scraped up the earth, formed first the body, then the head, then the arms. He joined the legs, he patted down the surface of the belly, so as to give the form of a man. Mm-hmm. 
And when he did this, he returned to Papa and told her he was finished. But um, Papa advised him to go to these different female ancestors, uh, such as Mauhi, and they would give him various things that he needed. And so he did that, and and then finally she was he was able to form a woman. Ah. It was called Hine Ahuone, or the Earth-Formed Maid. Interesting. So that's the creation story of the first human being, who is notably a woman. That is very interesting. Isn't it? So before I say a bit more, like, what, is, like, what does that make you think of? Like, the red soil turning into a woman? Lot's wife? Like, what are your or, thoughts on is that? Is that what you're thinking of? Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> oh, okay. Red so soil true, turning into sh- a woman. I don't know, I mean... But I do think that it was mentioned in my reading that, like, that's also how Adam was formed. Yeah, I mean, a lot of creation myths are made out of clay, which is really interesting and fun. There's, like, some sort of molding yeah. and sculpting aspect to it, whether it's, like, mud or clay or, like, paste from, like, you know, flour and cornmeal, which is interesting. But, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't have anything in specific it makes me that's okay i'm gonna tell you the the, the correct answer (laughs) so um papa's role in this story is already very important clearly but even more so when you learn that although many sources don't mention this kurawaka the place where um tani had to go to get the red soil to make the first woman is located at papa's vulva Uh and the red soil is her menstrual blood Uh the red soil that created the woman is her menstrual blood Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? Okay. Like, red soil mm-hmm. being used to make a person. Red soil, red yeah. blood. And so, Dr. Nahuya Murphy, in her paper, Te Awa Atua, Te Awa Tapu, Te Awa Lahine, an examination of stories, ceremonies, and practices regarding menstruation in a pre-colonial Maori world, talks about this in detail, and it's very interesting. This is just, like, part of it. But but it's interesting, first, because Papa's role is more than just the giver of knowledge here, which is as it's told in sort of other versions, like these sort of like post-colonial versions. But she's also directly involved in the creation of the first human and her role in this creation mirrors the way that women do typically give birth to new life. Mm -hmm. And Murphy also talks in this paper about how when Maori women get their period, traditionally it's something to be celebrated. Yeah. As it connects you to Papa and to your female ancestors. And she mentions that this is in direct opposition to colonial ideas about menstruation, which view it as more shameful. Yeah. And that women on their periods are contaminated. Yeah, that's true. But this is a much more positive, less shameful approach. And it's actually really interesting that there's like rituals involved with um, menstruating and giving birth Mm -hmm. and everything that are like meant to connect you to Papa, which I think is really nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I got my period for the first time, it was like so, it was scary. I was like, I know, I was so upset. <laughs> I was like, what is this? And so the idea of having celebrations is like, great. Then it's like, oh my gosh, guys, guess what? Time for, time for yeah. you to celebrate me. I got my first period. <laughs> like, oh, that girl got her period? That's exactly. so unfair. I want to get my period. Like, I you know, like, it makes it more exciting and fun. Like, Instead of something scary, because, like, you're bleeding, like, it makes it something more exciting, like, literally. 
you know. And the LMW being so shameful is like, I was even like kind of like embarrassed a bit at first to talk about menstruation. Then I was like, you know what? That's like the opposite of the themes here. Like, it's okay to like talk about it and be open about it. It's perfectly normal. Yeah, you're like throwing a party to tell everyone. You're like, you know, it's really. It's yeah, really nothing great. wrong with that. I think it's it's pretty cool that menstruation is involved in the creation story. Like, it makes absolute sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that like traditional Maori customs celebrate like being closer to pop up by getting your period like that's awesome yeah yeah it's really great it's just how a creation goddess can like still be really relevant yeah for sure in the daily lives of people because i feel like often because often creation deities aren't that important after the in the whole pantheon yeah yeah like even like in for example greek mythology gaia is not that important besides that she's the earth mother and she keeps she like causes trouble like she's like screw you guys here's some giants you have to kill yeah right uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah anyway <laughs> i mean also like the idea of you know periods being considered unclean in a lot of like cultures and the period's blood being like the creation of life like the life creating substance i feel like the opposite of being unclean it's like this is the most important like substance there is yeah true anyways yeah. So that paper is really interesting if you want to read more about Maori practices regarding menstruation and papa in relation to menstruation. Anyway, but another quote from this paper is, according to Maori, women in labor were often regarded as imitating Papa Tuanuku in her laboring of the elemental beings, mimicking her at a microcosmic level. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's her. I think her story is pretty awesome. Yeah. I think that's super fun. So now we're going to go to... What is known now colonially as the Northern Territories of Australia. And we're going to talk about the Diangewul sisters. And this is a myth of the Yulngu people of Arnhem Land and what, yeah, in the Northern Territories. And specifically their figures in the story are the ancestors of the Duamoiti, which is like a kinship group. And even more specifically, the clan. So there are two sisters. The eldest is named Bilduoreiroeia, and the younger is named Meoraleidia, and they're the daughters of Virpile, the sun goddess. And so during the dream time, which is a time of the creation of the worlds, they traveled with their brother, Dianguol, in his canoe, and they were carrying with them several items that were important for women. They had carvings of a parrot, they had a goanna, which is a carnivorous lizard native to Australia, they had a porpoise and an ant, they also had a uterus-shaped mat in a secret pouch. And they also had, uh, mentally, they had a few secret songs, only they knew, and one song could create a great deal of power. And so, Dianga Wool, their brother, was not happy that they knew the songs and he didn't. He wanted access to that power, but they refused since only the songs and their sacred objects could protect women from men's violence. But Dianguwu came up with a plan to get them. So, firstly, he seduced Bildure Roia, the elder sister, and when she became pregnant with his child, he prepared to move to the human world, aka this world, so that it had a land upon which they could raise it. But the younger sister didn't want to be left out, so she also slept with Diangawol and conceived a child by him, so that she also needed to travel with them to have a place for their child to, to stay. But when they reached the world, which is our world, it was dry and unfertile. So the sisters used their digging sticks to draw water from the earth and their poles to create plants. Then, once the earth was fertile, they blessed it with their songs and totems. 
And so in this way, they traveled across the land, making it fertile and blessing it, spraying up water, creating plants, etc. And eventually, because they were still pregnant, they became too pregnant and they had to stop to give birth. And they also, well, they stopped performing the very first Inger ceremony, which is a ceremony very important to people of this region to this day. And so once they gave birth, their children became the first people to populate this world and also the founding members of the Viradingu clan. And then once they had given birth, they took up their mission once more and also created laws and rituals to help govern their children when they began to argue. And then as they continued west, they gave birth to more children who became the founding members of other groups among the Dua Moiti, so the other members of the kinship group. And even so, Diengewu was not satisfied. He still wanted to get their totems and their songs, and he finally managed to steal them. But despite the powerful items being lost, the sisters decided that the power of their womb was enough, and they did not fight with their brother to gain back their totems. They continued onward. And that's really their story. Nice. Yeah. I think it's cool that there's two sisters. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really fun. I don't think we see a ton of creation stories in which there's only... When there's more than one person at the same time that are not like, you know, the mother and the father of, of the sh- same gender. Yeah, like two people of the same gender yeah, creating yeah. together. And so that's really cool. I mean, it is a full creation story. They're literally bringing life to the earth, which is very interesting and very lovely. And yeah, I agree. And so uh, my next lady is called Mawu. And she is from Dahomey mythology, and she is a creator goddess, also called Vodun. <laughs> Dahomey mythology, aka Vodun, was practiced by the Fon people of a Dahomey kingdom, which is located in present-day Benin. Mm-hmm. And um, as we know from previous episodes, Dahomey mythology eventually inspired Haitian Vodou and Louisiana Vodou as well. So many of the aspects of Vodun are also now present in Vodou and Vodou. But yeah, so she is called Mawu or Mahu, and she is either the female counterpart to the male spirit Lisa, or they form together Mawu Lisa, an androgynous spirit. Oh. So sometimes it's, sometimes it's just Mawu. It's, sometimes it's Mawu and Lisa separately, and sometimes it's them together as Mawu Lisa. Mm-hmm. And so in their pairing, Mawu represents the moon and the night, and Lisa represents the sun and the daytime. Kind of like yin and yang. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. Sort of. Not really, but like, (laughs) sort of. I mean, the thing of like the female element being the moon and the male element being like the sun. Yes, that. That's the way. That's what I was No, that's what I know. That's what you mean, yeah. Um... And so Mawu, or Mawu Lisa, created the earth and all of the deities of the Thon pantheon and divided up the realms among her children. And only one of her children, Legba, has the ability to communicate with Mawu Lisa directly mm. and the other spirits and all humans have to communicate with them through Legba, who is known as Papa Legba in Haitian Vodou, Louisiana yeah. Vodou. Which, this does remind me of what I know about Vodou, which is that there's like... It's like some somewhat monotheistic, somewhat polytheistic, and that was like a, like a supreme being, and then all the spirits kind of like report to them, and yeah. like are the mediums through hum- the humans can connect to the supreme being through like the lowest. Yeah. So, but yeah, and so according to the creation myth, Mo Lisa created the earth and everything on it, but then became concerned it might be too heavy, and according to legend, 
had the snake spirit, Aido Huedo, coil into a circle and become a cushioning support for Earth. Interesting. Isn't it? And it's often a detail that Aido Huedo existed even before the creation of the universe and carried Maulisa in his mouth as she shaped the universe. The snake was also there to sort of help shape the universe. Yeah, okay. With Maulisa. So it was just there? Yeah. And since Aido Huedo supported the Earth, Earthquakes were caused by his movement, mm. and since he moved around in an endless coil, this is what caused the movement of the heavenly bodies. Cool. Yeah. Isn't that cool? I feel like it's it's interesting when they talk about astro- not astrology, astronomy, like, because that's often not in, in creation myth, so it's really cool when it is. Yeah, like the wolves that are chasing the sun and moon in uh, Norse mythology, and that's why they keep going against the sky. Yeah, awesome. Or I guess most creation myths mention the sun and the moon, but not so much other stuff. Anyway, so also, traditionally, the fawn had a four-day week in recognition of the four days in which Moulisa created the world. On the first day, she gave birth to the gods and goddesses of the Vodun and made humans out of clay. Lovely. Once again, mm-hmm. humans out of clay. On the second day, she made Earth habitable for humans. On the third day, she gave humans speech, sight, and awareness. And on the fourth day, she gave humans the skills they needed to survive. Awesome. That's very interesting that humans were created immediately, but then the next few days were, were for giving humans more things that they needed in order to survive. Yeah. So it's like you sort of create the empty husk yeah. of the human and then you sort of slowly fill it as opposed to like they're being born ready-made. Yeah. Which is yeah, interesting. Definitely. You know, it's an interesting like, conception of how things moved. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And so another thing um, that's interesting about the creation myth is its use of the world serpent. Yes. Which is a mythological motif found in a few other creation stories. It's not like that common from what I could see. Like the world's turtle and the world egg are both more common. I love them though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the motif is like where a serpent supports or creates or helps create the world. And some other examples of this are Jormungandr from Norse mythology. Yeah. Who was in Ouroboros circling yes. the world, biting its own tail. I love an Ouroboros. Great word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love to bite our own tails. Yeah. I don't know. It's a great symbol. Great. Anyways, continue. What should I think about? <laughs> and there's also Shesh from Hindi mythology who... Holds all the planets of the universe in his hood. It's like one of those like yeah, it's, hooded a, it's a cobra, snakes, right? You know, yeah, yeah, or yeah, and 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 constantly sings the glories of Vishnu. Also, if I were to name a snake, I would absolutely name it Shish. Like that's a snake name. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it makes absolute sense. Yeah, and so and he also sings the glories of Vishnu from all his mouths. Oh, he has multiple. Yeah, apparently. And apparently there's also a deity in Dungeons and Dragons called World Serpent. So Wow, really creative. Great job. Pretty guys. awesome. Great job, guys. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also multi-headed cobra. Um as someone who's like actually afraid of snakes. Um terrifying. Cool but terrifying. Um but anyways. Yeah, I don't know if it's like a dangerous snake because it is supporting the earth. I mean, definitely it's not dangerous or maybe it is. in mythology, but like just in real life, yes, it is dangerous. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a creepy image. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't like snakes. Yeah, that would be um, horrible. I don't like snakes, but I like the world yeah. serpent because I love the idea of the earth being supported by an animal, whether it's a serpent or a turtle. I just think it's fun. 
And I love the idea of, like, yeah. the snake, like, going around and around, and that causes the rotation of the Earth. Like, that's... Yeah! It's also similar to an Ouroboros, so and that it's just going around and around and around, you know? In my opinion. I mean, it really is one, right? Like, that's what the it... Continuous the continuous The world cycle, serpent is. But yeah. Pretty awesome. Very fun. So that's Mabu. Love that. And the warp serpent. Yeah, so, um, staying in West Africa, we're gonna talk about Wayangi who is an Ijo figure. So Ijo or Ija are an ethnic group found primarily around the Niger River Delta in Nigeria and make up about 1.8% of Nigeria's population. And she is a female creator of the world. Shockingly, that's the theme of the episode. And her name means great mother (laughs) in Ijo language. Um, And so she was standing at the edge of the vast universe when she noticed a planet filled with animals, vegetation, and not much else. She was curious about it, so she descended to the Earth in a bolt of lightning. Before she landed, a few objects appeared for her to use. There was a roko tree, a table, a large chair, and a creation stone. And then when she appeared, she sat on the chair and propped her feet upon the stone. And then, now she was nice and comfortable, she used the mud of the earth to create sexless human-shaped dolls and then filled them with the breath of life, creating the first human souls. And since they were now alive, the humans asked Wayangi what their purpose was, um, which, great first question to have once you're created by a, a spirit or god. And she told them to choose whether they wanted it to be male or female, what blessings they wanted to receive, and their preferred occupation. I love this. I love all of this so much. <laughs> I would love to be able to choose my occupation as well. I mean, I guess I can, but like as one of the first humans of the world. Choose your gender, choose your occupation, choose your blessings. Um, And once they had these choices made, they were sent down either a calm or torrential stream. And once they sent down the stream, there was no going back from their choices because she was also the goddess of destiny as well as the creator goddess. So, like, based on the choices, you would get sent down, like, either a rougher or more calm stream, based on, I guess, like, how difficult your things were. Yeah. But, yeah, basically, the symbolic thing of, like, you're going and you can't come back. Um, and eventually, among these created souls were two women. One chose to have many children, and one chose not to have children, but wanted to have magical powers over the world, such as the ability to heal wounds and prophesy the future. And so these two women grew up as sisters, and they were happy for a while. But then the second woman, whose name was Agbainba, became discouraged because she could not enjoy the love of a child. And overwhelmed by her sadness, she traveled all the way back to Wayangi and asked that she could make a different choice and that she could take her original choice back. But since she was the goddess of destiny and the fate had been decided, Wayangi denied her request and told her that she had made her choice, she couldn't change it, and that was it. She couldn't change her fate. However, despite this rejection, Agbayingba was not satisfied and was not taking no for an answer. She challenged Wayangi to a magical duel. Awesome. However, Wayangi refused to entertain this audacious request and instead simply took away her magic powers. So now she had nothing. Not even children. No children, no powers, nothing. And then Agbayingba fled into the eyes of pregnant women and remains there to this day, looking at their children longingly, I guess. But yeah, that is the main story of Wayangi, who came to Earth from the edge of the universe, decided to create humans on it, and then had them choose their destiny. I think that's so fun. Imagine, like, I don't know if it's just for the first humans. Probably, yeah, it's just the first humans. But, like, imagine, like, being born and then being, like, you get to choose your 
occupation. And then whatever you choose, like, that's your life. Like, it's kind of, I mean, it's, I guess there's a, a, a portion to it that could be kind of depressing, but, like, I think it's pretty fun. It's, like, kind of like the giver, but also not because they're assigned their occupation, but then they're, like, well, that's your occupation. Like, they're not going to stop you from pursuing that occupation. And they're going to give you everything you need in order to have that occupation. I don't know. I haven't read that. You haven't read The Giver? No. <laughs> ah! Lizzie! Oh my gosh. I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyways, um, anyways, what was I saying? I'm so distracted now. I think it's probably like your soul before you're born gets the choice and they choose all these things and then yeah. when you're born you don't remember it, but like, it's kind of like predestination, I guess. Like, everything that happens is what you were suppo- was supposed to happen, and you can't really change it. Yeah, exactly. Which is somehow... It's depressing in a way, but also kind of nice in a way, I guess. Yeah, you know, everything happens for a reason sort of idea. It's a really interesting creation story. It's very fun. Gives you a lot to think about, kind of. I mean, I have to say, they can choose their gender. We love it. We love it. That's pretty great. I mean, technically everyone, it's technically anyone can choose their gender, but... That's so true. Everyone listening uh... at home, you can choose your gender. (laughs) You want to try out a gender? Do it. Go for it. No one's stopping you. I mean, society is trying to stop you, (laughs) but like, if you ever wanted to try out a gender, do it. This is my sales pitch. (laughs) Sponsored by Gender Incorporated. (laughs) Sponsor of the podcast. Anyways. (laughs) Anyways, Lizzie, who's our next lady? Yeah. So our next lady is Amamikya, who is a creation goddess from the religion of the Ryukyu Islands in Japan, which are a chain of islands in the southwest of Japan, a stretch between Kyushu and Taiwan. And... It's just a group of, like, I think 70 islands, and um, their religion is characterized by ancestor worship and animism, and also has influence from folk beliefs and other religions, such as Shinto. Yeah. And so the Ryukyuan islands are unique in that they believe in onarigami, the spiritual superiority of women. That is unique. Right? Yeah. In Ryukyuan society, women have special roles regarding spirituality, such as they perform rituals and tend to the hearth. Priestesses, who are called noro, are the spiritual practitioners of Rikian society who perform ceremonies and communicate with ancestors and deities, but all women are considered to have inherent spiritual abilities. So a quote regarding the roles of women and men from Women in the Religious Life of the Ryukyu Islands, Structure and Status by Rosamund Bell for her part, a sister should be able to rely on her brother for protection in secular life. A sister is regarded as having the power to bless her brother and also the power to curse him, while he is expected to help her economically, if necessary, even after she is married. So, yeah, different picture of life. Women are spiritually superior and men also have, like, their own roles. Mm-hmm. But they are meant to help out women, okay. which is nice. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like it's not really the place to go into a full like analysis of like gender roles in this society that I've learned about two seconds ago. But it's an interesting, it's interesting <laughs> in it's how it's different. Yeah. You know, especially yeah, like in Christianity, when it's a lot of the time in history for Christianity, it was like women are the servants of the devil. It's a nice change. Yeah, and like women are allowed to be like priests and stuff, or like maybe they are now, I don't know. Well, depends on what kind of Christianity you're talking about. Okay, fair. Because uh, like Catholicism, no. Um, Episcopalianism, yes. And they can marry. Okay. And they can gay marry. 
Oh, that's yeah. cool. But anyways, please tell me more about this lady. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I have two versions of the creation story. Uh, the first version was recorded recorded in 1606 in account of the ways of gods in Ryukyu. So two deities appear. The first being Amamikyu, and second being her brother Shinoikyu. And no- notably, Amamikyu comes first. And they built huts side by side, and Amamikyu became pregnant from a gust of wind, and three children were born. And one was the first lord, one was the first priestess, and one was the first of the common people. Interesting. Yeah, and the fire that they needed for their livelihood was obtained by Amamikyu from the Dragon Palace, which was believed to be at the bottom of the sea. Cool. Yeah, pretty cool. Second version, this one was recorded in 1650 in Mirror of the Ages of Juzon. Amamikyu was sent to Earth by the Lord of Heaven to find a suitable place for the gods to dwell. She went to the Ryukyu Islands, where at this point there was only water, and she created the islands and bestowed them with trees, grass, stone, and earth. She then wished to populate the islands with people, but the Lord of Heaven and the other gods didn't want to go down to Earth to do all this. So in this one, Amamikyo becomes pregnant with Shinoikyu's children, but without sexual intercourse. Oh, cool. And they populated the islands. And some generations later, a, quote, heavenly grandson named Tente was born. And he split the islands into five classes with his three sons and two daughters. Uh-huh. And they became the first king of Ryukyu. The first high noble priestess, the first village priestess, the first feudal lord, and the first farmer. Okay, so there's a hierarchical system. Or is it, like, hierarchical, or is it just, like, you stick to your role? Yeah, so, like, for the three... I mean... Is it possible to have one without the other? Anyways. (laughs) Well, so, I mean, the men, as you can tell, are, like, three different social classes. Uh Uh-huh. Which doesn't apply to the women, which notably, the women are both priestesses, one noble, one village. There's a distinction between the social classes of the men, but there's no difference in the spiritual power between the two women. And the fact that the only two women are both priestesses, they both have spiritual authority and neither have a role in the secular world. Yeah. Which reflects the belief that all women, regardless of social class or any other distinction, have inherent spiritual power. And inherently act as religious specialists. Interesting. Yeah. And another thing is, like, in the first myth, Amamikyu obtains the water from the dragon palace at the bottom of the sea, which, as I mentioned earlier, women have the role of tending to the hearth fire. Mm-hmm. And also, the, the fire came from below or beyond, mm-hmm. which suggests contact between women and a supernatural source where they can summon and use a powerful element for the good of their community. So that reflects the role of women in Ryukyuan society, where women have inherent spiritual authority and have the role of tending to the hearth. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I like all that story a lot. I also, you know, it's interesting that she is first impregnated by the wind because I'm pretty sure there's like other instances in different mythologies where that happens to other female figures, often creation figures. There definitely is. Um, which is really interesting because, first of all, you know, motifs and also it's like, I, I kind of see it as like, there's no other people, so who's going to impregnate her? The wind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> May as well be the wind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really cool. Really interesting. And yeah, again, I love a good creation story where it's like, this is why this is here and this is how they've made this and things like that. Yeah. And her tomb is located on Hamahiga Island in Okinawa and the place where she made landfall, Seifa Utaki, is one of the most sacred places in the Ryukyu religion and also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Awesome. Very cool. 
Yeah. Alrighty. Our last lady is from Egypt, and she is one of the oldest Egyptian goddesses. Her name is Neith, and she originated in western parts of Egypt, closer to Libya. And she was very important very early on, several queens of the first dynasty of Egypt, which was from around 2925 to 2775 BCE, were named after her. So several queens from the first dynasty of Egypt were named after her, and therefore that means cool. she must have been very significant because, like, you're naming the queens after her. Like, the queens are being like, this is the goddess I'm associated with. So very important. And she was generally depicted with a red crown associated with Lower Egypt, which I assume means she was associated with Lower Egypt as well. Uh, she was less associated with the physical creation with humans than with the actual creation of the world, the physical world itself. Yeah. And this is through her association with handicrafts. At the beginning of time, she strung her loom across the entire sky. And from this, she wove the entire world. And then she wove nets and used them to fish living creatures from the primordial waters, which included the first man and woman. And not only that, just created the entire world, no big deal. Um, she also <laughs> wove the very first burial shrouds for mummies. So incredibly important in a culture where mummy yeah. and mummification is incredibly significant. Yeah. And she was connected with fertility as well and invented midwifery and childbirth by helping with the birth of Ra, who was the sun god and the most important god in Egyptian mythology. And she was the mother of the crocodile god Sobek. And so her priestesses were doctors, midwives, and healers, and she watched over their health and life, and after death she guided their remains while their spirits passed into the underworld. So here we have this sort of association with the creation of life, but also the end of life as well, which is interesting and not something we see as much in like the rest of the woman we've talked about today, I would say, for the most part. But cool. I love the duality of that there. Um, and her symbol is a set of crossed arrows or two bows tied together, which could imply that she was associated with warriors and fighting. So again, we have that association with like death. And her worship reached the highest point during this 26th dynasty of Egypt, which was around 664 to 525 BCE, where the capital city was the city of Sais. And at this time, she was honored at multiple festivals. And in the most important one, her likeness of the cow with the sun between her horns was carried through the streets while people lit up their homes in honor of her. And I believe that she's sort of been associated with Hathor as well because of the depiction as a cow with the sun between her horns. Hathor is also depicted yeah. as a cow um, associated with fertility and creation. So that's also cool and interesting. Makes sense. Yeah. And to go with our bonus episode, she is depicted by Rick Reardon in The Serpent's Shadow. That is real. That is related. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that was going to be a link. Yeah. <laughs> they're just two random topics. No, yeah. Um, the, which is the third and final installation of his Egyptian mythology inspired series, The King Chronicles. And so this interpretation focuses more on her warrior aspects, as she is like kind of depicted as um, a paranoid survivalist with a doomsday bunker. Um, who hunts, like, humans wow. as a test. But it also mentions her skill in weaving, particularly weaving nets for catching things, which is also a big part of her myth. So it doesn't mention her creation aspects myth as much, but it does focus on the weaving part, which is, of course, a big part of the creation myth. But yeah, that is neat, and those are our ladies for today. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been, I was sort of thinking when I was doing the research of, like, why do gods choose to create humans? Like, what's the point? And I feel like in um in your in the first lady you talked about it was like she was bored and lonely. Yeah. Which I'm like, yeah, so true. Like it, if you had humans, you wouldn't be bored or lonely. Maybe you'd still be lonely, but yeah, <laughs> there's there'd be a lot to worry about. And 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting question. Honestly, that's a really interesting question. Because, like, humans are just create trouble. Like, what's the point? But I guess, like, if you're a god, you need something to be the god of. Otherwise, you're... What are you doing? Not much. That Not much, right? In the sense of, like, if you need people to worship you... I guess. Then you... There need to be humans. Yeah, I guess so. I mean... Oh. I don't know. This is, this is deep. I hadn't even thought of this. <laughs> <laughs> I... It's interesting. I mean, honestly, if you sort of look at the Christian creation myth of seven days, God is kind of like messing around. He's like, here, I'll do this. Here, I'll create this. That's good. I'll create this. That's that's pretty good. And then he creates human and he says, that's very good. So it's sort of just like God (laughs) messing around, seeing what he can do. And he makes humankind. He's like, you know, that was pretty cool of me. And then he rests. And so it's, like, a lot of the time it's just kind of them messing around, I feel like. It's, like, why not? True. Very true. <laughs> For example, like in Amamikyu, it's, like, clearly it's an inevitability that humans need to be created. Like, that's, that's needed for the world. Yeah. But it's, like, why? Like, if humans didn't exist, you're, you have to think about, like, a whole new concept. Like, it's, like, like us, but not as skilled and die. Okay, but also, Lizzie, if humans didn't exist, these myths wouldn't exist because there'd be no one to talk about them. But, like, yeah, I don't, I'm just thinking about the motivation of these deities being, like, I don't know. It's just, like, a thought exercise. I mean, I guess, but I, I think that the myth and the human and the god and the human are fundamentally intertwined, and I think it's related to what you said about I how mean, they yeah. need something, one, to worship them or to acknowledge them as a god in order for them to, in order for them to exist. To be a god yeah as a god whether as like to create them in the story or like to worship them and to keep having them be talked about throughout history and pass down their stories yeah they need humans for that and like yeah ultimately from like a more practical i guess perspective like simply if there weren't humans we wouldn't have these stories because we wouldn't have humans telling these stories we're the only as far as we know, we're the only animals that do storytelling, or that's comprehensible to us. So, like, yeah, there's no myths without humans. Yeah, there's no humans without myths. Whoa, what? Ah, uh, help! <laughs> I'm thinking about things, Lizzie. I'm thinking about the humans' inherent desire to tell stories and what it means about humanity. Someone make it st- <laughs> exactly. That's the thesis of our podcast. Girl, help! I'm thinking about the inherent need for storytelling in order to make sense of the universe. Exactly. <laughs> um. Anyway, I think people are kind of hopefully now people are understanding why. At least I, I can't speak for you, am so interested in mythology after all these years. Yeah. From, even though it's been a while since I just started reading Percy Jackson, and we've come a long way. Like, to be interested in mythology is, like, to be interested in, like, humanity and, like, stories. And, like, how we make sense of the world. And it's like, you can't have a creation myth where humans aren't created because, like... Exactly. Humans are the ones telling them They can't, like, not be in there. Yeah. Because, like, we know as humans telling these stories that, like, humans need to come at some point in this story <laughs> yeah humans had to be created or else like you're like the story's not accurate like where are they or else none of us would exist like, yeah. Hello? <laughs> yeah exactly oh, oh my gosh <laughs> wild wild <laughs> Uh, exactly flying i have to say and you know what when we started doing this topic i was like okay clearly like the earth mother thing is gonna come up but it didn't really but like i think the only true like earth mother of these seven ladies was papa tuanuku because like she is not she she is the earth yeah she didn't just create the earth 
Yeah, I mean, I had some women I was looking at, um, and I was like, well, they didn't really create any. They're the Earth, but they aren't the creators. Yeah. And that was what I was focusing on, was, like, the creating. Yeah. And sometimes there's there's similarity. Sometimes they're the same, and sometimes they're not. Yeah, there's, like, a Venn diagram. Sometimes they're both the creation god, or, like, or like the mother goddess, and also the Earth mother. But sometimes they're different, and there's a distinction between them. Yeah, it's interesting, like... Obviously, like, as I said, you know, I've always thought creation stories are fun because of how it explains things. And it's interesting to see all the different explanations that exist for why things are the way they are. And I love seeing the differences between how different people describe the same thing. Yeah. How they explain the same phenomenon. I mean, scholars often argue that, like, the story of how humanity's created or how the world's created shows, like, the attitude of the culture. Whereas, like, if it's exactly. kind of dark creation... Like in Norse mythology, where the world is created from the dead corpse of a giant, um, and humans are from driftwood that just happened to be washed onto the cosmic shore that God stumbled upon one day, versus a world in which things were created on purpose, and a God created you and was like, that's very good. Those are two very yeah. different mindsets, basically. Definitely, yeah. And two very different cultures. That like provides some insight into the culture, yeah. Which is awesome. And, like, there are appeals for both. Like, I can see the appeal of both, to be honest. One's kind of like, nothing matters. Yeah, definitely. Which, like, in the Which in like, the way of, like, nothing matters, it's it's in a way hardening sometimes. Because, like, you don't have to think. You don't have to, like, no, there's not that much pressure on you. Yeah. If nothing matters anyway. But, like, the thought of, like, oh, everyone's special is also nice. Yeah, the thought of, like, God looked down on you and was like, yeah, that's pretty that's good. That's just positive. Like, I don't know. That's cute. And that, like, and, like when, you cook, when you cook with cornmeal, it's like the building blocks of, like, humanity. It's like, yeah, makes your cornbread experience really positive. Yeah, like, when I when I make cornbread, I'm I'm using the same materials that the creator of the world used to make humanity. Yeah. Like, that's really cool. Yeah, and I feel like the, like, the, the creation stories, like, more than anything, get really, really into the, like, okay, why do we, as humans, like, create myths? Why do we tell them over and over? Why are we interested in them? And that's just awesome. It's, like, what, it's definitely something really, really interesting to talk about. Like, I, I host a mythology podcast, so I'm always so interested in it. But, like, how can you not be? It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful. And the fact that, like, every single culture out there does have a creation story. Like, we have to think about how we all came about and why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's inherent in our humanity. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, you can apply the concept of a creation story to things that are more concrete than, like, the universe, which is very hard to grasp, is things like the creation story of America what do we tell kids how about how America was created versus... Yeah, and, like, what like, does that what say? Is more true. This is a little different because there's more facts versus, like, the creation of the world. I guess there are some things that are more fact than other, but, like, anyways. You know, like, what does that say? What does this person say about their own... Like, what is their personal creation myth about how they grew up in their life? And what does that say about the image they're trying to project? You know, things like that. Yeah, we all create myths of ourselves and, like, other things in our lives. Like, mm-hmm. that's it's what Florence and the Machine sings about. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, where? And in The King, she's like, something, something, self-mythology. Oh, so We all create self-mythologies. Yes. <laughs> anyway. We all create our own myths. Go create your own myth today. Brought to you by Myths exactly. Incorporated, our other sponsor, <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Exactly.
Anyway, so the end. Listen yeah. to our bonus episode. And have a great day. Yeah. Um, please make sure to subscribe. Leave a review. Tell your friends for real. Do it. I know it's cringe. Do it anyway for us. Yeah. Do it for hashtag her. Um, anyways, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Thank you. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. May the Ladies Podcast is produced, researched, and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MythaLadies and visit us on our website at MythaLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. <laughs>